This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, Yes, welcome everybody to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I am your host, Elon Dubrovsky. It's been a bit of a layoff, but it will be worth it in your mind, I promise, because we have a really great show for you today. I was joined by Marat Atesh to talk about the Winnipeg Jets, and he brought it over an hour of solid Winnipeg Jets content going all through the lineup. I know you're going to like this interview. That's coming in just one second. Before we get there, I'll, of course, mention that we are presented by DopperHockey.com, the number one fantasy hockey website in the world. Great articles every day. You should really be just checking out every day if you want to be fully up to speed in fantasy, plus all the tools at Frozen Tools. I find them invaluable in prepping all of these long-form interviews. So definitely check it out, DopperHockey.com. But with that, I'm going to stop my blabbing and cut to my fantastic interview with Marat Atesh. Enjoy. Okay, everybody, really excited to bring you this next 31 Beats episode. We've got an expert to talk about the Winnipeg Jets with me from the Athletic Beat Writer for the Jets, Marat Atesh. Welcome to the show, Marat. Thanks for having me, Elon. How are you? I'm really good. Really excited that you're here. The Winnipeg Jets are one of these teams that have really just come on so strong over the past few seasons, and I'm excited to get your takes on them and if we think that they've like peaked or if they still have, have more to grow, because uh, I'll just get right into it. It's, it's been a tough road for the Jets like since they relocated from Atlanta. They only made the playoffs once in their first six seasons in Winnipeg, and the one time they did make it, they got swept by the Ducks all the way back in 2014-15 in the first round. But things have like shifted for them pretty significantly in the last three seasons. They had that huge 114 point campaign 2017-18 they end up going to the conference finals before losing to those pesky expansion golden knights and then they had another strong season a couple seasons ago 2018-19 where they finished second in the central but then they lost to the eventual cup champion blues so they've had some tough playoff competitors uh this past season 2019-20 wasn't quite as strong as the previous two seasons standing wise but they were definitely in the thick of things sitting in the first wild card spot at the time of the pause, though some of the nerdier hockey analysts out there, I believe yourself included, uh, have posited that maybe the Jets were maybe a little bit lucky to be in the picture at all. They were like third last of the league in expected goals percentage. I know you've shared articles about why Connor Hellebuck deserves the Vesna trophy because he had the highest goals saved above expectation, which is obviously great for Hellebuck, but maybe doesn't speak so highly about the Jets. So yeah, to start off, like I just have to get your take. Someone who's followed the team closely, do you think the Jets' record is like a fair indication of how strong the team was this season, or did the losses of like Buffalo and Myers true? But did they actually hit pretty hard, and Hellebuck's play just kind of helped mask the fact that they slipped as much as they did? Yeah, I think to to be objective about the Jets, you almost have to go piece by piece of of the game because I think if you look at the roster they have and you see that they were just on the threshold of playoffs by points percentage and they're going to be in the play-ins, you might say, okay, well, that's about average. That's about kind of what we would expect based on the forwards they have that are great, the defense that they have, that clearly um, they lost the guys that you mentioned. But I think that you start going piece by piece. And just like you said, you, you realize that, well, at 5-on-5, the Jets were a very poor team in terms of expected goals. They were bottom five all year long in terms of shots, shot flow, anything that you want to measure, the number of shots that Connor Hellebuck was made to stop at 5-on-5 or their quality, any of the public stuff you can find, say that he had one of the hardest jobs in the entire league and he stopped the most goals above average and above expectation this season. I think he's a strong Vezina candidate and a strong Hart Trophy candidate if people would 
it will look that way. I don't think he's necessarily um, going to be on many people's short lists, but I think there's a case for it. And then you go p- portion by portion. Why was the drop off at five on five so substantial? And I would say that the biggest reason that I can find for that is that the Jets peeled off a lot of their aggression. They essentially changed the way they played heading into this season to compensate for the losses of Bufflin, Truba, Myers, Chirot. A lot of the guys who are extremely aggressive up ice, who could play a really aggressive game from the offensive blue line in, pinch, join the forecheck, turn the offensive zone into four forwards plus one defenseman, those guys were gone. Winnipeg decided to go a different route and they pulled their four checkers back and they protected their own blue line a little bit more cautiously and a little bit more conservatively. In the end, you do that with the personnel Winnipeg had on defense and you miss coverage in your own zone often enough. Well, Connor Hellebuck, like I say, had a ton of work to do. You get into special teams, the power play was average. The penalty kill was awful and then it was great. Sort of averages out to average. The final picture is sure, their record is fine, but I think that to zoom in, and you, you really have to give Connor Hellebuck a huge portion of the credit. And then the, the team disposition-wise in sort of withstanding the five-on-five barrage and still maintaining its uh, focus in a way because they spent so much time in their own zone. They continued to play the game plan, whether it was working or not. Uh, they did the right things. The attitude was right. All of those sorts of things kind of go into it as well, I would say. Interesting. So yeah, they had to overcome obviously this big team change. So yeah, maybe we should give them some credit, like you say, for just kind of having the poise to hang in these games. And but of course, Connor Hellebuck, such a great season. So now, like, how do you like the Jets chances? Let's say if this play in round actually happens, they're scheduled to play against the Calgary Flames in the play in round if it happens. Like, let's say Connor Hellebuck is just average. Let's say he's not like stealing games for them. Do you think they have a decent chance to win that first round and to go far in the playoffs? Or does this team just not have it right now? You know, um, I find this one of the most difficult series to predict out of all of them. And I know that as the, as the guy that covers the Winnipeg Jets for the athletic, I should have a strong, like zoomed in declarative opinion about this series, but I just see so many things that are too close to call or too difficult to project. So too difficult to project Connor Hellebuck, just like you said, what if he's just average? And the thing about goaltending, as we know, mathematically, you can be one of the best goaltenders in the entire NHL you look at a five-game sample that that play-in series would be, there's no guarantee that Connor Hellebuck's numbers, save percentage-wise, are, are actually above average in, a five, in any random five-game sample. Yeah, you bet sure. on the guy because he's great. That's not a promise. That's definitely not a promise. And then on, the, on Calgary's end of things as well, some of their elite scorers and you know, Sean Monaghan, Johnny Godreau, and, and more struggled percentage-wise this year. It was tough. They, had dec- they were a better possession team than Winnipeg was, they didn't really get a lot of bang for their buck in terms of in terms of finishing things. So is that bound for some kind of regression or is there something systemic going on in Calgary too? The one thing I'll say at Winnipeg, I would say, has the advantage in goal. The rest is tough to tough to say. So for me, it's still a toss-up, and it's gonna be a toss-up until until we see it in action. Yeah, I think it'll be an interesting series. And like you talked about Connor Hellebuck and how like in a five game sample, who knows? But Hellebuck, I feel like has been on a bit of a roller coaster like since his debut with the Jets. Like I remember we like lost our minds for him when he joined the team. We're a fantasy hockey podcast. So like he came out of nowhere when Pavlik got injured in 2015, 16. And, you know, he like all of a sudden was like winning all the time, like having these great state percentage games. It was like, oh, and who is this guy? Obviously, people knew who he was. He was a you know a high pedigree prospect. But it was like all of a sudden coming in and doing as well as he did. We were super excited going into the following season that now, oh, the Jets have this starting goalie who's looking really good. And then he kind of had a weak second season, which then led to Winnipeg. I'm sure people recall signing one of Brian's favorite goalies, Steve Mason, in unrestricted free agency. And he started the first game. So I guess the plan was for Mason to be the starter. But it didn't take long for Mason to get usurped by Hellebuck, who ended up having one of his best ever seasons. He had 44 wins, a sparkling 924 save percentage. But then the on-off pattern held steady in 2018-19. Hellebuck fell a bit yeah still good but like a 913 save percentage instead of above 920 and then as we've discussed he was amazing again this season back up to a 922 save percentage 62.1 quality star percentage so he was great this year so now going into 2021 and i guess this playoff series like should we be bracing ourselves for another potential down year from hellebuck or did you see anything this season to indicate that the now 27 year old will be able to like break the streak and continue to be like one of the top goalies in the league like moving forward that's a great question and i have to preface the answer with saying um, goaltending forever will be a mystery to me in terms yeah. of projecting to it. Everybody's heard the goaltending is voodoo sort of suggestion, but 
Um, Connor Hellebuck is somebody who I, like you guys, have held in an extremely high regard for a long time. He was too good at too many different levels of hockey even prior to the NHL for me to write off completely at any point. Um, after that big 2017-18 season, he was the runner-up for the Vesna Trophy. It was his coming-out party. He had a huge, huge year. Um, out-dueled Pecorine in the, in the uh, second round of the playoffs and then got stymied by Vegas along with everybody else in, in the round after that. I think that the world expected that Connor Hellebuck had arrived and his contract that he signed that summer uh, reflected that as well. He was getting paid like a number one guy for the first time in his career. I think, or I'm willing to believe that there was a little bit of I arrived to, to Connor Hellebuck's game in 2018-2019, where the previous year, it's 2017-2018, he brought on a new movement coach in Adam Francilia, who gets a lot of praise around these parts for Hellebuck's transformation in his game. And then I think there, I think you could make a, play, a case or read into the narrative and say that there is maybe a hint of complacency to start 2018-19, and you can almost split his... Uh, his last season in, into two halves where his start was slow. Laurent Brassois came in like a house on fire. And there was even talk about all of a sudden, should they be a timeshare by the end of the year? Hellebuck had picked it up and just actually to, to use metrics in an attempt to guess at this, right? If you look at every goaltending season from 2017, 18 to now, so three seasons for any goalie like Hellebuck that's played in all of those years uh, or um, you know, some not every goalie has played all three years. But if you look at the entire list of hundreds of goaltending seasons since 2017-18, in terms of goals above replacement that he was able to generate, in 2017-18, he was fourth amongst all of those hundreds of seasons. Uh, in 2018-19, that step back, that average, that so-called mediocre season, he was still 33rd. He was like in the top tier overall. And so when you start to look at some of the um, shot quality factors. I think that there's a, a little bit of a redeeming streak to even his so-called bad year. And then this year, he's, uh, his season was ninth. So not quite as good as 2017-18, uh, but really still amongst the absolute elites. Goaltending, I'll exit the same way I came into this question. Forever is going to be tough for me to project. I think he is a reasonably good bet to stay in the top tier for as long as his body treats him well. Yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, you totally could have answered that question with like just a shoulder shrug and being like, I don't know, who knows? But uh, I, I tend to, I want to agree with you. Like it's, he's really coming on as like one of the top goalies in the league. And it's good to hear that even in the down year, he was, it was still like an upper echelon season in terms of all the seasons that goalies have had. Very interesting. Okay, so let's go to forwards. Maybe you could let me know if these are like easier players to project and try to figure out though. Uh, Patrick Laine, I'm going to have to say, has been a tough guy to figure out recently. Like he's also had a seesaw start to his career, kind of like Connor Hellebuck. He was looking like a sure shot superstar after his first two seasons. He pays for 40 plus goals, 70 plus points in both those years. It was even like more impressive to us because he was putting up those numbers with less than like 16 and a half minutes of ice time in 2017-18 and he was still above a 40 goal guy so we assumed like going into year three for line a which was his age 20 season it's crazy that he's played four years and he's only like 21 22 right now but yeah going into his age 20 season we thought he was on the verge of maybe even breaking the 50 goal mark we wondered if maybe he was gonna challenge for the maurice richard trophy and it was looking like that was gonna happen at first like if, if people recall he had that amazing november where he scored 18 goals in 12 games including that five goal game and it just looked like oh wow line is just insane and then he like completely fell off for the rest of the season it was so weird he ended up with only 30 goals and 50 points overall his shooting percentage which had been really high like that fell down to a more reasonable 12.2 percent so then going into this season i just recall brian and i having no idea what to expect from line because it was so weird how he just disappeared last year after being so amazing for two seasons plus a couple months uh but in the end he was pretty good this year like it was actually really good he had 28 goals 63 points that's a 34 goal and 76 point pace if he had played for the full season so do you have an answer Murat? like what happened to him in that last two-thirds of 2018-19 where he disappeared and then what changed to get him back on track this past season yeah you know what that's one of the greatest mysteries of hockey and <laughs> Uh, it, it continues to be, it's a difficult question to answer. And I, I look backwards for clues. So in his rookie season, a strange thing happened percentage wise in that at even strength, he finished at a higher rate than he did on the power play. I think he was at something like 16% uh, on the, uh, on the power play and even higher at even strength or something to that effect. But at five on five, it was better than the power play. So you look at that, you kind of wrinkle your, like you wrinkle your forehead a little bit. What's going on there. Uh, the second season that, that line a played his power play percentage skyrocketed and he shot at almost 25% on the power play, which is just insane. 
And then so I, I look at that and I wonder why. And that was the first year that Winnipeg really leaned on its 1-3-1 with Line A as, you know, the ideal primary shooting option across the ice from Blake Wheeler. You had Mark Shifley in the middle who also shot in the low 20s in terms of percentages. And you had Dustin Bufflin at the back. All three of those guys, right-handed shots, um, all three of them with just with bombs from the range they were firing them from. And it was Winnipeg's first year on that system. So maybe you might you might argue that they caught some teams by surprise in terms of the passing lanes Blake Wheeler was finding. Um, I think a 1-3-1 is predictable, honestly, but the success was just because there were such good options. Every, all three of those men were such brilliant options to shoot to, so one always had to be left open, and, and Winnipeg was able to exploit that. So then you get into 2018-19, where he just expo- he just goes off in November. That was one of the craziest goal-scoring performances ever. He opens it with a, a, a hat-trick in Helsinki, he has a five-goal game. Uh, everything's going his way, and then it just falls off. And I don't know. I don't have the answer for, for why, why it fell off. I can tell you he wasn't a strong possession player at any point in any of those first three seasons. Um, so he wasn't necessarily giving himself as many looks or as many opportunities as a stronger possession player would. Still, you'd expect more than the amount of goals that he scored. This year, however, I'm willing to call this – we're going to – Something's going to happen in the next couple of seasons, and we're going to look at that as the breakout season. I think this is the one to point back at where he he turned a, a bit of a mental corner for himself um, in terms of his playmaking and his just distributing. He's always been an excellent passer. He found different angles and different looks. He added a slight power forward element to his game where every once in a while he uh, he was simply capable of bullying players in a He's not just a shooter, let's say, and he's not just a puck carrier. Sometimes he's been playing a really intense, competitive, physical possession game on the wall. So he hasn't quite figured it out yet. But at 21 years old, um, he had just a phenomenal season and the most complete season, I would say, of his years so far in the NHL. Does he hit 50? That's the key question. I really, I see no reason not to bet against his shooting talent. And if he plays for long enough, you have to think that one of the years he goes on a shooting percentage bender and it, it rolls his way and he, um, he has that opportunity, he has it in him to do that. The last thing I'll say, in, instead of turning this entire episode into a Patrick Liney monologue, mm-hmm. is that what I'll always be looking for from him is sort of the selection of where is he going to score those goals from. On the power play, I sincerely believe he'll always be dangerous as long as you can get him the puck. In the zone, if he can find soft dice, he'll always be dangerous. If he continues to build up that power forward game, drive the net, he'll be dangerous. But where, where an Ovechkin scores 10 to 15 goals every year that Patrick Laine doesn't is by bulldozing his way right to the top of the crease and, and scoring goals out of havoc as well. So the more dimensions that he can add to his game, the higher that his odds of, of hitting that 50 goal mark uh, go, in my mind at least. Yeah, I mean, like we said, he's only 21. So I definitely agree with you that there's got to be at least one big breakout season coming. Though even if he stays like he did this past year, obviously it's going to be a fantastic career. I wonder if another thing that's different between him him and Ovechkin so far, though, is that Ovechkin is playing on Washington's top line, you know, with Nicholas Backstrom. He's got the top center to play with. I'm sure Patrick Laine, or I'd imagine he would score some more goals if he got to play with like a Mark Shifley all season. But it seems like he's generally been more used on the second line like this season he was playing a lot with Eakin and Ehlers at the end while Connor Wheeler and Shifley were the were the top line like do you think that there's a uh, idea in Paul Maurice's head that he wants to get line a on the top line or do you think he'd rather leave it how it is with Kyle Connor there and then is that going to maybe lead to line a not having as many opportunities as someone like Ovechkin does yeah you know what that is well said and it's a great question as well I think well first of all that was a big story this year let's be real um uh, he was sort of taken out of context, but just before the season started, Line A did allude to the fact that, well, he hasn't played first-line minutes. And some people read it as a shot against Brian Little, with whom I don't think he's ever showed a tremendous amount of chemistry with on the second line. Mm-hmm. Now, Little was hurt for most of the season, so that threw out everything kind of for a bit of a loop. Um, so it was the, the idea of Line A wanting those top-line minutes has certainly been in jet circles for at least a year. Um, and then if you look at the lines that Paul Maurice deploys, as a general rule, you can count on Kyle Connor, Mark Shifley, and Blake Wheeler being the top line when, when, you know, when things hit the fan, so to speak. Um, there have been momentary experiments with other lines since 2017-18 when Connor broke into the league. But when the chips are down, he goes back to that combination. Now, the interesting thing with Little's injury 
was that it gave Paul Maurice almost an easy out in terms of giving line a top line time. Blake Wheeler was the best remaining center option at second on the second line. Little was gone. They didn't have enough faith in Andrew Kopp to take that role. Jack Roslovic is still early on in his development. It became Blake Wheeler allowing Patrick Laine to take those first line right wing minutes. And that was probably Patrick Laine's first extended look on the top line. Might not be a coincidence that he had such a transformative year in terms of his all-around game. And the more looks he gets... The more looks he gets in transition, the more looks he gets in the offensive zone, the obviously the better the player that he's, he's going to become. So there's a strong argument to be made, especially if you're a metrics guy and you, if you like balancing a top nine instead of going old school, that Winnipeg would do itself a favor if it spread out some of its elite scorers and gave Patrick Liney a, a number one line spot, uh, gave Kyle Connor a different spot and, and elevated Nick Ehlers as well. And what that means is less minutes for a guy like Blake Wheeler, which is kind of what happened this season. But does Paul Maurice envision, like when, when the play-ins start and everybody's healthy, does Paul Maurice, uh, can he help himself from that Connor Shifley-Wheeler line that worked for him so well in 2017-18, the best team he's ever coached? I don't know. I think that's a tempting look for the Jets. Yeah, and I wonder if maybe Cheveldayov, like could do line A a favor, maybe get him a good second line center. Like Brian Little is solid and we'll get to him in a little bit. But in general, like I saw you wrote an article recently on The Athletic. You broke down, what was it, like 16 candidates for uh, the second line center. So I'm sure there's some are looking better than others for Patrick Line. But I wonder if, you know, even if Paul Maurice wants to stick with the lines, he does. There's still ways that he can be helped. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next few seasons. But you brought up Kyle Connor. And I got to tell you, like, if you would have asked me a couple years ago, who would be leading the Jets in goals for the foreseeable future, I would have assumed Patrick Line and not thought twice about it. But Kyle Connor's outscored Patrick Line over this past couple of seasons. He led the Jets in scoring this year. He just had a career year at 38 goals. 73 points and only 71 games that's a 44 goal 84 point pace uh, like an insane season for Kyle Connor it seems like at this point we'll see from what your past answer but like it seems like he's secured like you know those minutes on the top line on the top power play he gets a ton of ice time he was second amongst forwards on the team in ice time behind only Shifley he played over 21 minutes per game like we knew Connor was great you know he had 30 goals 60 points over his previous two seasons but this year like he really broke out as a superstar so do you think what we saw this past season like was for real and that was the real Kyle Connor we should expect him to be this like 40 goal plus 80 plus point guy moving forward and like if so like I'm just curious to know like what changed this year for him to break out like this yeah I I think since uh, since I'm going to say partway through last season. I'm not sure exactly what month to, to pin it on. Kyle Connor has been leaned on in all situations in, in a huge way. Uh, even in the playoffs last year, I believe against St. Louis, he was perhaps Winnipeg's minutes leader in all situations, even above Mark Shifley for Jets forwards. He's somebody that the team simply trusts. And that's that includes the penalty kill. And obviously both Line and Connor play top power play minutes as well. Um, but at even strength, he's essentially their go-to guy. And for me, that's such an interesting thing because offensively, I think he is the real deal. There is no jet, and that includes Liney, that includes Shifley, Wheeler, Ehlers, all through the all down the line. There's no single Winnipeg jet that I would rather have the puck from about the top of the circles in than Kyle Connor. Wow. He's got a he's shifty on his feet. Uh, he, he's got a quick brain so that he he never wastes opportunities in terms of reading what's in front of him and making the right call. Um, he's a deadly finisher. He's got a great release. Uh, he, he simply does have, by my eyes, my observation, he's their most elite finisher from in tight uh, by, by a stretch. And I think he's one of the best in the NHL. The, the question I have is, is Kyle Connor going to have as many offensive opportunities to continue this 40-plus goal pace? Because he's not a good possession player. There are things that some of the other Winnipeg Jets do, whether that's the Nick Ehlers, even a Patrick Laine to a certain extent, who I don't rate as a terrific possession player, that that exceed what Kyle Connor is capable of in sort of a two-way sense. He's not a strong winger in his own zone. He doesn't have elite zone entry numbers, anything to that effect. You just get him in the offensive zone. He reads, especially he reads when Mike, Mark Shifley and Blake Wheeler are, are cycling and cutting back and looking for just that perfectly timed cut from Connor into the, to dangerous ice. Uh, for Connor to exploit that. So I think he's always going to be a high-end finisher. I think he's going to be a high-end goal scorer. Do I think he's going to be a two-way person that simply takes over games the way that a Blake Wheeler would have been at his peak? Jury's still out. He's a young player. 
uh, and is still getting better and can still add that. I, I've had long conversations with Paul Maurice about how he believes Kyle Connor has the speed, the intelligence, and the quick stick to knock pucks down, become an elite four checker on top of being an elite scorer. I personally, I just, I don't see that yet. So um, to, to answer your question in a long-winded way, I, I land on, I think offensively very much he is what you see. He's, he's so real in that way. And there's even, if you revamp the Winnipeg Jets power play such that he's not sort of net front and off to the side of the, off to the side of the net and is in more of a prime shooting position. Should the Jets ever go away from the one, three, one they have right now, there's probably opportunity for Kyle Connor to score even more goals without necessarily even needing to evolve as a player. And that's a scary thought. That's a, that should be a scary thought for people in the central division. Uh, And then it's for me, can he become a true elite? Can he drive play? Can he do those other sorts of things? Um, that's going to be the big mystery of, you know, as he peaks through 24 years old, 25 years old and, and onward. Yeah, he's only 23. You're right. So like he probably will even improve as a player. Plus you're saying there's opportunities for just the play style of the Jets to give him more goals. So that's wild. So, you know, I asked you before about line and if he's going to, you know, hit 50 goals at some point. Like we had a question from one of our listeners, Mathieu, who would you, who would be your pick? Who's going to lead the Jets in goals over the next five seasons? Assume they play the same number of games. Who would you put your money on? That's a great question. For me, I continue to believe that Patrick Laine has the higher ceiling. I just think that, you know, when I was talking about figuring out when he's a power forward and figuring out when he should carry the puck and figuring out when he should get into soft ice, I think that Patrick Laine has access to more than we've seen from him so far. And I think based on his dominance of Liga as a teenager, the way that he's already broken in the league, his relative age, I think he's going to find that more. And I think he's going to find those opportunities while maintaining an elite shot. Um, so I'm more inclined to think that Kyle Connor has reached sort of his, his peak in terms of end of year numbers, but maybe he'll be able to replicate them a whole bunch of times. That would be a great offensive player. I think Patrick Laine, there's more in me to believe that, that he can find other ways to generate offense than what we've seen from him so far. Right. I wonder uh, what the Vegas odds would be if that line got released. Him. Love to see him. I mean, Connor's had more goals for the past two seasons, so maybe Line becomes the underdog and you can make some money. So uh, someone's got to put that up there for us <laughs> to uh, take <laughs> advantage of. Uh, okay, so we've talked about these guys who are still are at the start of their career. So I want to switch over now to someone who you've brought up who's at the other end of his career in Blake Wheeler, who's been the Jets' most consistent offensive contributor since the team moved to Manitoba. He's pretty much been a lock to hit 65-plus points year in, year out, no matter how good or bad the team was. And in fact, I recall for years my co-host on the podcast Brian, he would preach that Wheeler is underrated in fantasy. Like even when he started breaking 70 points as he approached his 30s, he would still fall pretty far in fantasy drafts. And finally, someone would pull the trigger on him. And then at the end of the season, be like, wow, you know who was a big surprise this year? Blake Wheeler. I couldn't believe how valuable he was to my team. Uh, but that did change a couple of years ago in that great 2017-18 season where Connor Hellebuck, you know, took off. So did Wheeler. He broke out for a huge 91-point season in his 30s. He replicated that again in 2018-19. So he cemented himself as a a real superstar in the league with two straight 91 point years then this past season like wheeler had a bit of a slow start which caused him to land with 65 points in 71 games falling to a 75 point pace though like you've brought up i almost don't know if we should call this like a disappointing season because he had to deal with this fact of brian little's injury and then he had to be the center on the second line and obviously it's not as good to be playing with uh second liners and top liners so like with all this in mind like how would you judge this past season from Wheeler? Like, is it that he's actually just as good as he was before? And the reason for his point decrease was because of this changing role? Or, you know, did he just kind of slow down a little bit in total points because he's getting older and that's just kind of what happens as careers progress? Yeah, you know what? I think that Blake Wheeler, reputation-wise, will forever be cursed. This is what I think. (laughs) And why I say that is because I agree with your co-host, Brian. From about 2011 onwards, I think he was one of the most criminally underrated NHL players um, across the league, any team, any division. If you look, I I think um, from when Winnipeg moved from Atlanta to about 2017-18, he's, I think, in the top five, if not better, in terms of five-on-five points across the National Hockey League. And if you asked a casual fan to name their top 10 in points over that time, I don't think they'd get to him in their top 30 and then top 40. He was quietly an elite five-on-five player for almost the entirety of his career. And I don't think he got the love for that. 
Now you head into 2017, 2018, that big, uh, that breakout season that you talk about. Now he's got that superstar status. Well, the interesting thing is how, how does he get those points? And the, the answer is that Winnipeg's power play exploded. Not only did the power play explode, but the entire system revolved around Blake Wheeler as the playmaker. I was talking about Patrick Lyon as an elite shooter, Mark Scheifele and Dustin Bufflin in 2017-18. That's a murderer's row of players who, because of where Wheeler is on the ice and because they're right-handed shots, every single one of them is an instant one-timing shooting option. Nobody's got to stop it and then shoot it. They're open to a one-timer. All Wheeler has to do, which isn't easy, but he's good at it, great at it even, is find the right choice, exploit the defense, choose the one that's open, fire away. Right. And if you look at his point totals, well, his even strength production stays about solid uh, over the course of the, those two years where he hits 90-plus points, but it's on the power play where he really goes off. So now he's got superstar reputation, and I think that age is finally starting to catch up with him at 5-on-5. Five um, this particular year, his point scoring rate at five on five was the second worst of his career. Is that because of his age? Is that because he played center for a while? Probably a little bit of both. But I think it's time to start moving Blake Wheeler from one of the very best, most elite five on five players to kind of a solid first liner, maybe a really excellent, amazing second liner in terms of it five on five. But the opportunity he has on the power play and a system that revolves around him on the power play has elevated him to premier level in reputation a little bit a long time actually after he deserved it as far as i'm concerned so does he like go from being underrated all this time and now he might be a little overrated i think it's possible depending on who you are and i I never know what perceptions go into whether underrated or overrated but i personally feel like he was underrated for a solid decade um and then i think the reputation is catching up now he's got the all-star nods the massive point totals as well and because you guys are fantasy too depending on what stats you track it might even be great that face-offs that, that he's moving in a center from time to time right if you've got a right winger winning you face-offs all of the time um then all of a sudden you're making hay on, on that front too so i think he, he continues to be a valuable player in a number of ways even if age will catch up to him points wise yeah, and hey, even if age does catch up with him, I imagine if he does get to play a whole season on the right side of Mark Shifley, that could maybe also counteract that. And he is he is amazing for fantasy. He also hits, he shoots, he does it all. Multi-cat stud, a lot like Neil Pionk, who we'll get to in a little bit, <laughs> who was amazing for that. But I want to do a couple more forwards with you. And I'm really fascinated by what's been going on with Nikolai Ehlers, because we've already talked about so many offensive weapons on the team. We haven't even really gotten into Mark Shifley. To be honest, I couldn't even really think of a good Mark Shifley question, because he just seems to be so consistently getting the same number of points year in year out but uh Ehlers fascinates me because he's coming off a career year this past year a lot like uh, Kyle Connor and some of the other players we've talked about he just put up 25 goals and 58 points in 71 games that's a 67 point pace a very nice bounce back from his 49 point season in 2018-19 and it's even more impressive that Ehlers just put up a 67 point pace because he doesn't get to play on the top power play like all these other guys we've talked about he does most of his damage and even strength it seems like Winnipeg only wants Ehlers to be on the second power play even when they've had injuries for some reason Ehlers just never gets a shot on the top power play I remember seeing guys like you know Matthew Perot and just other names on the top power play ahead of Ehlers so I guess my two questions about him are first of all like which version of Ehlers would you say was the more real version of him like the around 50 point guy from a couple years ago or this like 65 70 point guy this past season and then also I'm so curious to know like if he ever got that top power play opportunity, are we looking at like at a point per game guy? Because all you need is 10, 15 more power play points, which he should be able to get if he's on the top power play and he'd be right there. Yeah. You know what? I think he has that in him. I think he has the skill set and the ability and because it's Winnipeg and he's tucked in reputation wise behind Shifley, Wheeler, Connor and line a um, that he, I don't know that too many people know that he, how good he is yet. I personally believe that what we saw from him this year is a closer reflection of his his offensive ability. He led the Jets in terms of five-on-five points per minute, right? Like in terms of his ice time, the amount of production that he gets out of it, he was Winnipeg's best player. And by eye, he was at times four stretches Winnipeg's best forward as well. And that's above all of those much more famous guys. The thing that he does phenomenally, and I doubt that we'll ever have, you know, zone entries as a, well, not in the immediate future in terms of a fantasy stack category, is he simply moves the puck up ice. He is one of the league's fastest skaters. He reads the defenses in front of him, and he's able to break through traps. He's able to break through four checks and simply generate offensive zone time because he moves the puck up ice so well. He skates. He's, he's up there with Matt Barzal and Connor McDavid, some of the most elite zone entry specialists in the NHL. 
So then you think about power play opportunities. Why wouldn't you want a guy like that on the top power play yeah. who, if Mark Scheifele loses the draw and he's a below average centerman on the power play in terms of faceoff percentage, um, you have somebody who's a, almost a guaranteed zone entry coming back the other way. Well, there is a place he can make a, eh? he's got a plus shot. Nobody talks about his shot, but as a left-handed shooter, he actually has a solid one-timer. He can blast it. Um, so, so far, the reason I would say the, the biggest thing that keeps him off the power play is that the Jets run a 1-3-1, and I've talked about the right-handed shooters. He's a lefty. So Wheeler in front of him has Shifley, he has Line, and now he doesn't have Bufflin anymore. He has Neil Pionk, a righty at the point. The only left-handed shooter on that top unit is Kyle Connor, who's limited to the net front and to the side of the net as a bit of an interchange for Blake Wheeler. There's no premier spot for a shooting left winger on that power play, and he's not going to... Winnipeg's not going to put him in Wheeler's spot to, to make those passes because Wheeler does it so well, and he's the captain and the franchise in a lot of ways. So if he's going to break into that top unit, he either has to take Kyle Connor's spot beside the net, um, and Kyle Connor is, I think, thought of by the coaching staff as you know the best option there, or Winnipeg's going to have to go away from its 1-3-1 and completely reinvent its power play. Now, are they going to do that? Well, they ran two top five years back-to-back. This year, they were average. Did they think they were average because of their system? Do they think they were average just because of chances? Do they have their own metrics in terms of the chances they're generating, et cetera, et cetera? But for Nick Ehlers, if you ever get wind of Winnipeg revamping its power play, Nick Ehlers is a great candidate because he can shoot and pass at a, at a, at a very high level. The league is progressively moving away from 1-3-1 power plays. What Edmonton did this year, which was incredible, what Toronto has done in terms of its puck movement, almost everybody's a shooting or passing threat. If Winnipeg goes that route, Nick Ehlers is, is a strong candidate, I think, to, to hit a career year in points, whatever season that happens. Yeah, I definitely agree. It seems like he's just a top power play opportunity away from like really jumping up in our minds, kind of like Blake Wheeler did a couple of years ago when you said that Winnipeg's power play took off. Elus just hasn't been able to get on the train, uh, but maybe one day. Obviously, right now, like there's not really an obvious player for him to bump. Like it's all great players on the top power play, but if someone's injured, I'd love to at least see Elus get a shot there. Uh, so I brought up this article that you wrote on The Athletic before about all these potential guys who can take over as the second line center. I wanted to just talk through with you like what you think the plan is right now because Brian Little as we know he missed uh, the start of the season with a concussion played six games then he got hit in the head with the puck in his seventh game he ended up missing the entirety of the season eventually undergoing surgery to repair a perforated eardrum so actually even before I get into anything how is Brian Little like do we think that he will be back for this playoffs or is he feeling okay he's being discussed as an option and will continue to have testing throughout the summer. So we're getting right up against, I think, July 10th, assuming everything goes according to plan is when camps are going to open. That's not that far away. Yeah. Uh, but the last that we've heard from Paul Maurice and the last that I'm aware of is that uh, he's got ongoing testing and is a possibility to play. If he does play, I think his legacy in Winnipeg gives him an inside track at second line center. If he's capable of it, if his conditioning hits, if all of those sorts of things... He hasn't had a ton of success with, between Line A and Ehlers in the past. So there's a big question mark. Um, no, and then I feel like I cut you off, so I'll throw this right back to you in a second. But the, the, the thing that I'll say about Brian Little or whoever plays as Winnipeg's second-line center, whether it's now or next season, is that if they sma- slap him between Ehlers and Line A, as is the tradition in Winnipeg, they're going to get much better wingers now or in the future than Brian Little did two years ago, the last time he was healthy for an entire season. So they might be able to lift him up depending on where he's at. Yeah, it's a good point. If you're playing with Lainey and Ehlers, then maybe you don't have to be as elite as you used to be. But it is obvious, like Winnipeg seems to want to go in another direction. Like for the past three years, they brought in Paul Stasny, Kevin Hayes, and then this past season, Cody Eakin. Well, Cody Eakin's a whole different story because Little was injured. But like they've been bringing in these guys as rentals to take over as second line center going into the playoffs. Is there a plan to like, you know, actually get someone not just at the trade deadline, but, you know, in the off season, like, do you, do you think Winnipeg is going to go the free agent route or the trade route? Or are they, do you think their plan for next season say is to lean on little again, or do they have another player internally? Like if you had to bet right now, I guess I keep asking you to bet. I don't even know if you're a betting guy, but uh, like, who do you think is the second line center uh, to start next season in terms of like a free agent, a trade acquisition, someone internally or Brian little. I continue to be the like, Charlie Brown attacks the football optimist (laughs) that Brian Little will return to full health. And then the pragmatist that says for as long as he's healthy, he'll probably get the inside track at that second line job. Um, Paul Maurice holds him in really high esteem. The organization holds him in really high esteem. And he's, 
he's begun to fall off because of age, even prior to that injury, and perhaps age and perhaps because he was being asked to carry very inexperienced non-play driving wingers at the time, like Nick Ehlers and Patrick Laine. Now, Nick Ehlers, I would call him a play driver. He moves the puck up ice so well. He doesn't, Little wouldn't need to cover for him quite as much in the same way as in the past. And, and Patrick Laine has obviously improved as well. So I continue to believe that as long as he's an option, Winnipeg will give him, uh, give him that range to see what he can do with it. But then, like you said, every year there's that Kevin Hayes trade, there's that Paul Stastny trade. Like you say, Cody Eakin's probably a different story. Winnipeg is clearly aware of its need. They're going to enter, even with a flat cap, which is kind of what I anticipate, like there's a mechanism. The cap's not going to drop just because of the amount of revenue lost. I think there's a mechanism for the NHL and NHLPA to to accept an arbitrary cap number, and it's probably going to be flat is my best guess. All of that to say, uh, I expect Winnipeg to have cap space this summer. It's also going to have a need at top 4D in signing Dylan DeMello and maybe even ideally one more player. Uh, but that whole second line center continues to exist. So did they try to, to look at one of those 16 players I looked at? Like a Michael Granlund would be a perfect combination of play driving and high-end offensive talent. Um, that would be a great option for them. But where are their priorities? And that's what you're asking me. I sincerely think that they'll wait and see what they have in terms of health first. They'll try a little. If he's not healthy, okay, move on. Um, Andrew Kopp was used as a second-line center very briefly at the beginning of the season. He's not a guy that will probably ever break the charts in terms of point totals, but he's an excellent defensive center, which probably Winnipeg's best defensive center, to tell you the truth. He usually plays wing alongside Adam Lowry, so I'm not sure if everybody thinks of him as a center. That's how he was raised, and he can still do it. Um, And he would be a perfect case of a guy who wouldn't have the offensive chops of his line mates, but would be asked to carry uh, just a defensive load such that a line and uh, Ehlers or whoever's on that line can play in the right end of the ice and make hay that way. There's an option. And then Jack Roslovic, there's the, the other one to consider. He's played center for this, just the ever so briefest stint so far. Uh, when he does, um, it, it's almost game to game, whether I believe that I'm looking at a guy who can be a second line center in the NHL or I'm looking at a guy who's probably more of a, of a, a, a top six winger who would benefit from having a simpler assignment. I don't think he's there. Like, I don't think he's, he's blown down the doors and said, I'm a second line center. I'm going to definitely succeed as a center in the NHL, but he's a very good player. So whether he's on the wing in an offensive capacity in the long run or at center, I'm not sure. I think Winnipeg will exhaust every single one of these options. Then when they're exhausted, um, the reality is just too real that they need help. And then that's when the shopping will begin. Yeah, and I guess if they don't get a free agent, there's lots of players they could potentially trade for, which you've listed. Like, uh, I, it's just it's a great article. People should check it out. Like Max Domi. I remember we talked about the Habs in an earlier episode, and we talked about Max Domi as someone the Habs might want to look to trade because they have too many centers. So who knows if maybe the Jets and the and the Habs could get on the phone and try to work something out. Uh, you brought up Roslovic. I do recall, I think it was a couple years ago, there's some buzz around this guy. Like, oh, I think this might be like a breakout season for Roslovic. He's going to get a chance in the top six. And he has had opportunities in the top six. He's never really broken out offensively yet even playing with like Ehlers and Wheeler for a bit of the first half of this season uh, I see that he's a pending RFA at the end of the season do you think that Roslovic is someone who the Jets are going to like sign to like a long-term contract now or do you see them giving him a bridge deal and see like do they know yet like who he is or do they still need to see him play a couple more seasons before they could tell if they want to keep him long-term or not yeah, you know what? I don't think that they or anyone can know exactly what Roslovic's ceiling is at this point. And I think that that maybe does inform a bridge deal for both parties. Because if you're Jack Roslovic and you're sort of like, look up Jack Roslovic's minutes, he's tucked behind so many players. Even right through last year, he was essentially a fourth line player at even strength for an extended period of time. He hasn't had a ton of opportunity until this season when he ended up with Nick Ehlers and Blake Wheeler on that makeshift second line when injuries hit. So now you're beginning to, he's getting looks, he's getting his at-bats, he's getting his repetitions, and you're beginning to see flashes of kind of the next step for him. What's he going to be? I'm not necessarily so sure at this point. So I think a bridge deal in the low $2 million sort of area probably makes a lot of sense for him to bet on himself and to believe that, hey, when I do get that opportunity, I'm going to make hay. Um, he probably still believes, if you look back to his junior upbringing and, and, and coming up uh, in the American system, he played at times with Matthew Kachuk. He played at times with Austin Matthews. Uh, he outscored some of those guys at stretches. I mean, he would have been older by a little bit as well. But there's no, in my mind, 
in my mind, trying to guess at what's in Jack Rosovic's mind, there's no part of me that believes that he has stopped thinking of himself as an elite offensive player. Give him the opportunity. He'll make hay when the time comes. So I think a bridge deal would make a lot of sense for him. Yeah, I also feel like maybe what would make a lot of sense for him would be to go to another team just because of all the teams that I've talked about in this series. Like, it really doesn't seem like Winnipeg has that many holes where he could jump in. Like, we've talked about, you know, Connor, Shifley, Wheeler as the top line. And then you've got Line and Ehlers and maybe Brian Little or someone as that center. So I guess it really is only that center spot. So I guess Rostovic is going for that. And, like, normally I'm trying to speculate of, like, what other players can maybe jump into the top six. I don't really have many other guys to ask you about. I guess one player, I know that we've got a lot of prospect fans out there that I'll always want to hear about the guys who haven't really had a chance in the NHL yet. And so I've got to ask you about Christian Veselainen, who was the 24th overall pick back in 2017. I'm seeing he didn't have such a great offensive season this past year, only 30 points in 60 games for the Manitoba Moose of the AHL. Obviously, I don't know the context around that and like if that's a good team or not. Uh, did the Jets organization, do you know, did they see this past season from Veselainen as a disappointment with him only producing at this half point per game pace? Or like, what do you think the chances are of him cracking the team and potentially making an impact next year? or sometime soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what? He's an interesting case. He's, he's, a, he's been somebody who's been at the top of the prospect list for a little while, and maybe a season like this bumps him down a couple of notches as, uh, you know, it wasn't really until David Gustafson went down and played a long time there, and then towards the end of the season, uh, there was a little bit of a stronger moose look from what I made to understand as, as the year went on. But as Winnipeg was hit by injuries, so too were the Manitoba moose. And Manitoba's players like a Logan Shaw that would score a ton at the AHL level, um, but be more of a fill-in at the NHL level. You know, Manitoba didn't have access to that, et cetera, et cetera. What I'm doing, I think, is making excuses for Veseline in the season. <laughs> He's an interesting player. He's such an interesting player because at 18 in Liga, um, in terms of NHL equivalency, if you, if you use uh, scoring rates by league in an attempt to estimate what he would score in the NHL level – um, he had a, a, like an astoundingly good 18-year-old season in Liga. The following year, he played uh, for the Moose for a very short period of time. Then he went to the KHL, playing out of Finland in the KHL. Um, he's had a lot of miles on him in a short amount of time in a very young age. And this is his first full season that just happened. His first full season on North American ice. And I know it took him some time to ad- adapt to that and adjust to that and take different routes and sort of adjust the way that he plays. So I don't see him as ready to, to knock on the door and steal a, a Jets roster spot this fall, you know, or whenever next season actually begins, <laughs> yeah. this January, whatever, whatever it's going to be, because I think he's got some work to do on the North American Ice Service and at the AHL level first. In a traditional year, I would say look at this guy to be one of those half-season AHL guys, and if he's ripping the cover off the ball, so to speak, then he'd get his call up. And that's that's the Jets' route, and you saw it with Jansen Harkins this year. You saw it with Mason Appleton last year. You saw it with Jack Roslevic the year before that. When Winnipeg graduates its guys, it really does its best. It wants to, and I think most organizations do. You hear Pascal Vincent, Manitoba's uh, head coach, say this all the time. We want this to be his last call-up because he doesn't come back down. And I don't think Christian Veselainen is ready for his last call-up at this stage. He's still young enough. I believe in him as a prospect, but I would look for that closer to a point-per-game AHL season, and then he'd reestablish himself as a, as a prospect of NHL move. Right. And I guess, hey, even Nikita Gusev, who led the KHL in scoring a couple of years ago, had trouble adjusting to the North American ice. So maybe Veslina just needs a little more time and we'll see what happens. But it sounds like you're saying, watch his AHL numbers next year and get excited about him if and when you know he starts scoring at a point per game there and then see what happens about going to the Jets. Okay, so I think we've covered the forwards pretty well. I want to end this obviously on D, which was like the big question mark going to the season. As we discussed at the top, Truba was traded for... Neil Pionk and a first and then Myers left in free agency. And then there's all that drama with Dustin Bufflin, not reporting to camp. And like the one thing I thought from all of this, cause I'm dumb is I thought the one certainty was that, okay, Josh Morrissey is someone you want to grab in fantasy now, cause he's going to obviously take over as the jets top guy on the blue line. He was coming off a 43 point pace breakout season, 2018, 19, where he even got some shots on the top power play when Bufflin was injured before Truba took over. But like, I totally 
overlook the fact that they did get someone back for in that Jacob Truba trade who was Neil Pionk. And Pionk took over on that top power play pretty quickly. Like Morrissey, I don't know if people remember, he had that top power play job until mid-November. Seemed to be doing pretty well, actually. He had seven power play points through 20 games, which would work out to a 28 power play point pace season. I don't know if people generally refer to that stat, but like that's a lot of power play points. Uh, but then Maurice decided to give Pionk a shot and the rest was history. Pionk had a fantastic offensive season, ended up with 45 points in 71 games. That's a 52-point pace. He had 25 power play points. Also, like I said, multi-cat stud, 177 shots, 165 hits, 78 blocks. So in fantasy, Pionk was amazing. And so I definitely want to get your thoughts on both of these guys. But let's start with Neil Pionk. Like, how good is this guy? Like, I remember when he was on the Rangers, people were talking crap about him, like saying how he was a defensive liability. He was always losing the possession battle, but he was getting big ice time. I remember at the time, I don't know, like with the Rangers, they were such a weird team. We didn't know like why he's getting all that ice time. Were they even trying to win games though? Uh, but Paul Maurice then came and gave Pionk that same amount of ice time. He was playing 23 and a half minutes per game. He was on the top power play. So like, is he actually really good? And just what we saw on the Rangers wasn't really like you know like that was just a bad team and so like he was just like not looking good because of the people he was playing with you know what i'm beginning to think that has a lot to do with it because let me wear this i underestimated neil pionk i thought that winnipeg was getting a third pairing caliber nhl defenseman at five on five and a guy who would specialize on the power play i liked his power play numbers in new york i liked him at four on four i liked him Anytime there was more room on the ice, I thought he could wheel. But at five on five, I didn't believe in his ability to defend. And I thought he would be a third pairing guy. I think he was Winnipeg's most important defenseman this season. Josh Morrissey was a little bit on and off. He had a, he, I think it's fair to say Josh Morrissey struggled. He said it himself. He learned more this season than any other in his career. Um, and he was aware that there was criticism of his game in public circles. So all of a sudden, now Josh Morrissey is struggling. Now Dustin Bufflin isn't playing. Neil Pionk steps forward. And at five on five, he was Winnipeg's best defenseman in my mind. And on the power play, he takes that job. And you're talking about it in terms of the point production. It's so interesting to me because I, 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 I've harped on Winnipeg's top unit being a 1-3-1 with three right-handed shooters. Josh Morrissey is a left-handed shot. I think he got that initial look on the power play as a bit of his nod to his pedigree and a bit of a nod to the fact that he was expected to be the number one guy because of he's been homegrown. He's a top pairing caliber defenseman. Struggles aside, I think everybody believes in him and probably should still believe in Josh Morrissey. So he gets that initial look and he puts up those points like you say. But if you look at sort of the chance generation numbers, the sort of stuff that feeds into points, um, he wasn't necessarily as good as the defenseman on that unit would traditionally be. And I'm not saying Neil Pionk's numbers on that front were, uh, were elite, but they were certainly good. And then when you go into points, in, like I, I've looked this up for this. So Neil Pionk had the 12th most power play points in the, in the NHL this season. That's, that's incredible. It's high for 12th, I should say. Um, in terms of power play points per 60 minutes, he was sixth in the NHL. Um, oh. So I, I think that we're not even talking about Neil Pionk on the power play in it with as much esteem as perhaps that we should be, at least as a point producer. The interesting thing about that to me is that by eye, he has put up those points in such a different way than we're used to. Um, so he has the numbers in Winnipeg. He has the numbers in New York. I think, you know, anything can change as the time goes by, but I think we can expect he's, he's a power play stud at this point. You'll watch him though. He doesn't have a cannon. Like out of... Dustin Bufflin, Jacob Truba, and the various other options that Winnipeg has played on its power, top unit power play over the last few years, I would say that Neil Pionk has the, the, the least hard shot of all of those. Similarly, one of the th- roles of the, of the blue liner on Winnipeg's power play is to feed it across to Patrick Liney for that one-timer from time to time. Blake Wheeler is going to pass it to Neil Pionk. Neil Pionk might shoot. He might attack a lane. But one of his options is passing it over to Patrick Liney. Uh, Dustin Bufflin's pass to Patrick Liney was a cannon, and there's a lot of belief, or at least a discussion in jet circles, that the cannon of that pass helped Patrick Liney generate speed and beat goaltenders on the power play. Uh-huh. Neil Pionks is a little bit more of a soft feather. It's like a little bit more of a of an alley-oop sort of, sort of deal. And there's a theory, and I don't know if it's true, and I think you need puck and player tracking to be sure of it, that Patrick Liney has been unable to generate the speed on that shot on that one particular pass from Neil Pionk because it's not as fast as what he's used to getting. The goaltender is able to push post to post, et cetera, et cetera. All of this said, uh, all I'm saying, I guess, is by eye, you kind of wonder how he does it. But 
But at the end of the day, Neil Pionk was an absolutely formidable defenseman on the Winnipeg Jets power play. He's right-handed shot like the system calls for. I think the job is his to keep. And he's got the track record even, you know, having a young career in New York where he was already putting up points. There's something to him with the man advantage. And I would bank on that to continue unless Winnipeg ends up with just a marquee replacement of some kind. Yeah, wow. It's just like such a wild trade because they trade Truba. They get Pionk in that like first round pick, I think it was, which you assume like that was the big return there. But now like, you know, Truba, I guess he had a good defensive season this past year, but like he kind of disappeared offensively. And Pionk is the guy who's the top power play stud now. So it's interesting how things uh, change so quickly. And it's interesting that you say it's his job to lose at this point, which I guess isn't great news for anyone banking on offense from Josh Morrissey, who like played a lot of minutes this season, but only ended up with 31 points and 65 games it's a 39 point pace falling from his 43 point pace the year before uh like do you say that that he admitted that he struggled a little bit and he learned a lot so should we assume that means that Morrissey is probably going to improve moving forward like do we still see Morrissey as being a 40 45 point guy even if Pionk holds that job on the top power play well that's the interesting question because for me uh Power, sorry, point production from defensemen is so power play contingent. Yeah. The reason Jacob Truba went off for 50 whatever points he did last season was the power play. I, he was always a strong, even strength point producer. All of a sudden, he gets the power play time, the, the points explode. Neil Pionk has a career year playing on the Winnipeg Jets' top power play. So, can Josh Morrissey improve his numbers from this season without more power play minutes? I believe so. But I always think or I think he's always going to be in that second tier of offensive player in that he's a good player. He's good. He's above average at almost everything you could imagine from an NHL defenseman in terms of his speed, his mobility, his passing, his shot, everything he's pretty good at, but I don't think he's ever going to have that dominant trait that guarantees large swaths of power play prime time minutes or the, or that sort of role. So I think we're very close to having seen Josh Morrissey's ceiling as a point producer for the jets hey, he's still a number, like a top pairing caliber defenseman moving forward. I think that fans can be happy with that. But are you going to see him put up those gaudy offensive point totals that make him a power or a, a fantasy stud? I don't know. I'm not sure that I see it anymore, or at least without that opportunity. Yeah, maybe his biggest uh, fantasy contribution moving forward will be to play well defensively and help Connor Hellebuck continue to put up good fantasy numbers. And I guess aside from Morrissey, I don't really see any internal competition from players who were on the team this past season to challenge for that top power play. The Jets do have some prospects in the system that I'd love to get your take on and see if any of them have a chance to challenge, like, first of all, to make the team and then potentially to challenge Neil Pionk maybe to take over as the top offensive guy there. Uh, Obviously, one name that a lot of people think of is Sammy Niku, who was picked way at the end of the 2015 draft in the seventh round, but he burst onto people's radars. He had a 54-point season with Manitoba in 2017-18. And since then, Nico's gotten a couple of runs with the Jets, hasn't gotten much ice time or made any offensive impact. So maybe I'll just throw all the names at you, actually, then you could just kind of tell me at the end here. So another name I saw is Dylan Sandberg, uh, 43rd overall pick in 2017. He's been with the University of Minnesota Duluth in the NCAA for the past three seasons, uh, 21 points in 28 games this past season, which obviously I have no, like I said before, I have like no context to understand if that's good or bad. Seems good for a defenseman. I noticed uh, with Sandberg, it's interesting because he's going to be uh, UFA at the end of next season if he doesn't sign with the Jets. So who knows if he'll even ever play with the team. And then the, the one other name I wanted to run by was Vili Hainola, who was the Jets' first round pick last year, 20th overall. And he had eight games with the Jets to start the season, had five points, which is really good. And then he went to play the majority of the season in Finland's Liga. So yeah, any of these three guys jumping out at you as someone who is primed to make the team next year or in the next couple of years and challenge between Niku, Sandberg, and Hainola? Yeah, you know what? That Those are the guys to ask about for sure. Sami Niku is the furthest ahead, and a lot of that's going to be age. Um, and part of that's going to be his contract status. So with Sami Niku, yeah, he had that massive season, 2017-18. He was a rookie in the AHL, and he won the top defenseman of the year award. Not the top rookie, not the top rookie defenseman, the top wow. AHL defenseman uh, on the back of his offensive ability. And the guy can wheel. He's a fast skater. Um, He can turn on a dime. He's a great passer. He has offensive instincts. That whole game, that whole side of his game, 100% figured out. I already think of him as a dangerous defenseman at the NHL level. Um, The problem, if you're Sami Niku, uh, is that you're perceived as a guy who's dangerous in his own end as well. So even this season with so many injuries, so many absences, Dustin Bufflin's not playing 
uh, all those UFAs depart, uh, and there's injuries, well, who's getting the minutes in Winnipeg? It's waiver wire acquisitions. It's depth signings. So you have Anthony Bittetto, Lucas Pisa, Nathan Beaulieu, um, Carl Dahlstrom even. Uh, and these guys are getting minutes that Sami Niku would otherwise, I think, have a case for. Some of that's going to be injury, but I think a lot of it is the perception that he has his own zone to figure out at the NHL level. Um, what changes for him at the start of next season is he loses his waiver exemption. So oh. Winnipeg could bring him to training camp, and instead of sending him to the moose for free like they've been able to do for so long, they've got to either keep him or, or risk losing him to waivers. I think based on the death chart, and I think based on where he's at in his career, he's earned the right to be a full-time NHL defenseman and work on that part of his game to, to develop it in an all-round sort of status. And then fans will wonder, well, he hasn't gotten minutes so far. Does that mean that they, they don't think highly of him or whatever it is? And that's a question that's going to be a valid one until we see him play minutes. And I think that's just legitimate and real until we see minutes because so many other guys have gotten it in his stead. Um, moving on to the other guys you mentioned, Dylan Sandberg did sign, so there's no risk of him being lost to unrestricted ah. free agency. That was a big concern, at least in fans' eyes. I think um, I was under the impression for some time, and, and Kevin Sheveldayoff tried as hard as uh, last about a year ago. The, the, the aggression towards the contract signing began, and uh, I think uh, it would have been known in some circles that he was going to sign this spring, and he did eventually. Um, all to say, he is probably the most exciting defensive prospect for Winnipeg that hasn't played in the NHL yet. Uh, he's above average at just about everything. I don't know that he's going to come in and be a massive point producer. I think that the exciting thing about him is that he he's a he projects, if everything goes well, to be able to be a top four defenseman without those holes in his game like a Niku has, right? Like where with Niku, you might wonder, hey, is he always going to have this one glaring Achilles heel, whereas he can do so many offensive things brilliantly. With Dylan Sandberg, if he pans out, I think the read is that he's going to be able to handle it in his own zone and in moving the puck up ice and, and shooting as well. The most exciting to me, by far, long-term, long-term for sure because he's the youngest, is Ville Hainala. And his patience with the puck, his ability to process an extremely fast game and make the right call already as an 18-year-old last fall was just superlative to me. And I don't, I don't make this comparison lightly Amongst Winnipeg Jets that I've watched in the last few years, if you give me, if you give a player not very much time and only a, um, and not very many options in terms of a pass to execute, um, Mark Shifley is the best by far. He is the elite among elites. No amount of pressure will stop Mark Shifley from making an excellent pass. Ville Hanela is maybe number two. Wow. Like, uh, and that is such a small sample size that I'm leaning on to say that. And so I want to be cautious about saying he's automatically a stud because he's been able to demonstrate that at 18 years old. Like, let's be real. He's also not a big guy. He doesn't, he doesn't skate terribly fast. Um, there are other parts of his game that may be an issue, but in the way that his brain processes the game, reads what's in front of him, and then executes that pass, I think that one piece of the pie is elite. Like, I think at 18... He's already shown a really special side of, of his game. Does he make the NHL in a full-time capacity next year? I think a lot of fans will, will want that, and the organization probably wants that as well. It would be an exciting turn for them. Um, but for me, I still preach a little bit of caution because he was 18, he'll be 19. Um, he is a smaller guy. Even his idol, Miro Heiskanen, who came in and had a massive year for Dallas, uh, took some time to transition from Liga to full-time NHL play as well. There, I don't think Winnipeg can lose a ton by slow playing him, maybe running him through the AHL and looking for some, some really big results there first. But um, if, if there's one guy who of those three stands out to me is, is, as having something in his game that's special, that could really mean big minutes, big numbers, big everything down the line for me is Billy Hainel. Cool. So yeah, anyone who's in a dynasty league, take note now, grab Hainala before it's too late because he might come up and, you know, like as great as Neil Pionk has been, it seems like he should be a like not as entrenched as like the top power play defensive for years and years to come. Like maybe after another great year next year, maybe he'll lock that in. But for now, like it's still, 
I, I like, I'm curious to know who the next guy could be. And so it sounds like you're saying it's Hanala for sure. So thanks so much for this great rundown of all these prospects and for the team in general. This has been so fun. The time has just flown by. One last question I want to ask that we've been asking to all of our beat writers that have come on the show is uh, if I were to ask you to pick one jet who you think is going to be like the biggest surprise next year in a positive way, like someone who people might not have super high on their radars and he's just going to totally exceed expectations. And then on the other end, who's a jet who people maybe have too high on their radars and is going to end up being the biggest disappointment. Who would your two players be? Uh, If you're going for impact on the game, I would say the guy that's not nearly famous enough for how good he is and is going to be, uh, I'm going to say is Nick Ehlers. I think Uh, he's one of the game's premier uh, play drivers already and has more offense to bring to the table as well. I don't think he gets... uh, he has that acclaim yet. So I think that the next step for him next year will be to gain that acclaim. And if you're looking at a guy who has the acclaim but may underwhelm, I think Kyle Connor is my, my lead for that. And the reason for that is just the questions I, I continue to have about his defensive game and will he have enough opportunities to, to finish at that level that he, he really has demonstrated so far. I think he'd be my guess at somebody whose peak we've already seen and Nick Ehlers would be my guess at somebody whose peak we, we definitely haven't. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Like Kyle Connor just set the bar so high this past season that it would be really hard for him not to disappoint. Just staying the same would probably be like really great if he can just do that year in, year out. Yeah, that's a good player. Like it's okay if Kyle Connor just does what he did this year. Yeah. I mean, defense, I, I continue to harp on that and uh, that is going to be what he needs to get better at. However, what Winnipeg has gotten out of that draft pick and out of that per- like that player so far, that's good. Please don't take it to me and I don't rate him as a, as a, as a good NHL player by any stretch you know Winnipeg's set in terms of young offensive talent for for a lot of years yeah for sure but I could imagine in fantasy when you see a 23 year old that just scored 44 goals some people's inclination would be oh man the ceiling must be like closer to 50 goals and you're saying maybe if any if anything it's like Patrick Line might still be a good person that you can get a little bit lower than what uh, he'll end up being uh, so yeah thanks again for all the time you gave us people should definitely be reading all of your work over on The Athletic I mentioned a couple of the articles but it's like a really exciting list of just Jets content all the way down you haven't stopped writing even though the season has stopped and it's been fun to read and follow uh obviously people should be following you on twitter at wpg marat and is there anything else you want to tell people about that they should be checking out and following um i mean twitter at wpg m-u-r-a-t that's that's the spot and then the athletic for winnipeg no man elon you you you've been that that's it you hit the spots (laughs) um yeah so thank you Uh, the other thing that i say is just thank you for having me on your show i appreciate it Oh yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. I was so excited when you said that you were able to come on. I see here on your uh, athletic profile that you appear on podcasts throughout Canada. So I'm in Toronto. So this counts another podcast in Canada that uh, we were so happy to have you on. Thanks so much. Have a great rest of your night and good luck to the Jets against Calgary if the series happens. Right on. Thanks. Cheers, man. Wow, what a fun interview. Thanks so much again to Murat Atesh for coming on the show to talk Jets with me. I really enjoyed that one. Really great insights breaking down the lineup from top to bottom. How lucky are we to be getting all of these awesome beat writers? I've got another really good one for you coming soon. I know we had a bit of a hiatus over the past week. I'm trying my best to bring you these interviews. You know, when I get the interview, I record it. And then I release it and we're going to just try to keep it coming. We've got another one, like I said, coming really soon that you're going to enjoy. Harman Dayal is going to be coming on soon to talk about the Vancouver Canucks. But yeah, thank you so much for listening, everybody. I hope you've still been enjoying this series. The feedback that we've gotten has been great. And I'd love to get more feedback, great or not great. Tweet at us at Keeping Carlson. Let us know what you think. If you have any feedback, always open to hear it. If you want to help support the show, We would still, even though it is technically the NHL offseason, though now playoffs are potentially coming very soon, uh, we'd love a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That's a good way to help support the show. It doesn't cost you a thing. You're already on the internet, right? And then if you did want to support the show, just show us you're there by signing up as a $1 patron on Patreon for just any amount. Uh, We'll just give you all the perks that we have available, which is mainly right now our patron-only Facebook group and our monthly patron cast. We're going to be recording a patron cast very soon, actually. We've got to get to uh, scheduling that. I'm going to give Brian a call. But anyway, I will, at this point, cue the outro music, stop my rambling, and get to the credits. So this episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and supported by our patrons. Logos by Brandon Weeb, outro music by Pat Roach, and this episode was researched with help from Dauber Hockey's Frozen Tools, Natural Statric, Hockey Reference, Hockey Viz, Elite Prospects, Roto World, The Athletic, and of course, from The Athletic, Murat Atesh and all of his great insights on the Winnipeg Jets. 
like I said, we should have another one of these episodes out in just a few days. So stay tuned for that. And until then, keep on keeping Carl Sand.